This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. From layoffs to lack of trust, news about the media can seem like a steady drip of doom and gloom. Try working in the business. One relative exception over the last decade, though, is the rise of podcasting. It's not immune for market and audience shifts, of course, but it's become a bona fide cultural force and moneymaker with ad revenue in the billions and growing. Well, my next guest rightly gets a great deal of credit for that boom. As a groundbreaking radio host turned podcast impresario, Ira Glass has flipped the script on the media industry's despair. But then again, since his show This American Life first launched nearly 30 years ago, Ira's always had a way of doing things differently. Ira Glass is coming to Toronto to share lessons he's learned along the way in a live stage show that's happening next month. Before that, though, he joins me here on The Sunday Magazine. Ira Glass, hello. Lovely to be here. Are you comfortable with uh, being described as sort of like a good news story in the world of the dire landscape that is the media landscape? <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Who would say no? No, I am a failure. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like our, our show, like we continue to have a big audience and people continue to like it. And it is different from what happens on the news shows, for sure. And podcasting, fair to say, it may not be still in its heyday of a few years ago, but it's still the golden era of podcasting. I don't know if I would say it's a golden era, but there's a lot of podcasts that are going strong. There was an era where it felt like there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of outside money coming into it where people were trying things. And now the money has gone and uh, or a lot of it has gone and the experimentation is a lot smaller. There's still some wonderful shows, though. So you're a hard guy to introduce um, because... Of course, to especially a lot of our public radio listeners, like they feel like they know you and they're very familiar with you and your work. There's also like lots of accolades I could throw at you, and I don't want to boost your ego too much, but you know, the Pulitzer, the Peabody. Um, but I just read one the other day that my producer pulled up. You know this, I didn't. A few years ago, an episode of This American Life became the first broadcast available as a podcast to be added to the U.S. Library of Congress National Recording Registry. And I have to say, I find that pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's like, yes, it's nice when things like that happen. Yes. Yes. It's, it's hard to know what to do with the feeling of that. You just sort of be like, okay, that was pretty good. <laughs> like, okay, now what are we going to put in the air this week? So, 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 you know, yes, it's yeah. nice when it happens. It's the same way. Like, honestly, like sometimes I get asked to play cameos of myself on cartoon shows. So, you know, like on The Simpsons and Bob's Burger and you're just a different BoJack Horseman. That That is the same kind of feeling of like, wow, that happened, you know? Except for with this one, centuries from now, when historians look back at what Americans were listening to, it's going to be like Louis Armstrong or Louis Armstrong, uh, Bob Dylan and Ira Glass. That is definitely not going to be what, what happens. But that's a really <laughs> sweet thought. 100%. Those guys had much greater market penetration than than, uh, than our little show. But but that's nice of you to say. And so as we talk about the little show, um, This American Life, next year, uh, it'll be 30 years since you first hit the airwaves, which means that 30 years ago now, you're likely dreaming it up, working on it, all those things. Do you remember how you even envisioned it back then? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 at the time, I was working for like the big, like you know, NPR, the American equivalent of the CBC. It was working for the big NPR news shows, 
And so there was a kind of story that I had that I liked doing where you would get involved. It was it was like a it was like a kind of radio feature story, but but heavily, heavily in the world of feature where you would really get involved with the characters, with the people being interviewed, and you would watch something unfold. So there would be a plot to it. And so there would be funny moments and emotional moments. And I just thought like you could have a you could have a show which would have those stories. And at the time I was also producing people like David Sedaris. Uh, who had just at that point started publishing his books, um, who told these like funny narrative stories, and you know I was putting those onto onto the radio as well, and and David would occasionally have a story that was like twenty twenty five minutes long, and literally there was nowhere on the radio in America that I I could put them like they were just simply mm. too long, like the longest uh, the longest space you could get on a news show. Uh, on NPR at the time was like nine minutes. And so he, so I, I was aware that there was all this material that I had available to me that was good but would be impossible actually to compress. Or I could compress some of it, but it, it was leaving stuff out. And, and I just thought like you could make a show that would combine these sort of essays and uh, and writers that I was liking putting on the air with, uh, with, with a kind of a quick journalism uh, and these stories with characters and scenes and funny moments and all of that and that could be a show huh. and and it would be kind of like it would be kind of like the stuff I think a lot of people like best when they listen to public radio in the states and maybe in Canada too like are those kind of featurey stories that give you a lot of feelings and and kind of take you somewhere different and um you know like obviously we all tune into you know our shows for the news but but like the stuff that is not the hard news and um, I thought, like, well, that could be a show. So your archives are all online. You know that. Um, I don't know when the last time you heard this thing I'm going to play. Uh, but I just want to play a, a short clip from your very first show. Hey, Franklin? I'm ready. It's Ira Glass here. Uh, you're the MC on the show, Ira. I am the MC on the oh, show. Oh, yeah. great. Ira? 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 Ira. Oh, great. Well, you know, one great thing about starting a new show is utter anonymity. <laughs> Nobody really knows what to expect from you. This interviewee did not know us from Adam. Do you miss being that sort of unknown public radio reporter? Like, does it, has it changed your access and, and, and ability to get certain things out of people? It definitely messes things up with certain people um, because they feel like they have to perform for the radio. And generally, when I start an interview, especially if it's somebody who we heard about something going on in their life and we want to meet it, you know, we want to interview with them. And if they've heard of the show and heard me on the air, and if they're in another city sitting in a studio already, it's kind of a weird, artificial, nervous making environment. And then I get on the thing with them and then I sound over the headphones just like I sound on the radio. So then from their point of view, suddenly it's like they're talking to the radio, but now the radio is talking back to them. It's just a really <laughs> weird experience for them. And I always make it a point to tell some story, say something personal about myself. Like I just, like like early on, either before the interview or in the interview. So I seem more like a person and less like, um, like a, you know, like a figure from the radio. I will say that this only applies to like half this, the interviews I do. Like, like, you know, the, I just still do a tremendous amount of, of stuff where like, I'm just talking to people who have no idea what our radio show is or who I am. And, and then in those cases, obviously it's, it's much easier. Yeah, they're the best, right? When they just are like, who, who's this MC? I, Ira, is it? Ira Glass? Call me great. I'll tell you all my secrets and stories. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is. Yeah. 
Um, so in that segment we played, you were looking for a little advice on and how to have a long-running show. We're, we'll come back to maybe some advice you want to tell people about that a little bit later. But let's just um, talk about the present. And you're you're heading to Toronto next month uh, for a show that is called Seven Things I've Learned. So I could ask you to list the seven things, but I won't. Um, but are you sharing like sort of hard-earned wisdom and advice? In one or two of them, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, like, there's one or two of them. Like, like, I really do talk about like how I figured out like how to tell a story. That actually took me a really long time, and it was hard fought knowledge. And, um, and the nice thing about doing it on stage is that I can play examples, audio and video, and and it can be funny and like that. So I do that. And then after that, honestly, like, there's a bunch of stuff that I sort of have a grab bag of stuff that I'll like go on the road with and then I just kind of pick that morning like oh which ones do I want to do today and which order would seem fun and then and then I'll be rotating stuff in like there's a thing that we just put on the air a week or two ago that I think will be really nice to play for a crowd and so so and so it's really like a, a series of stories just that seem like it would be fun to say in front of people because they're especially <laughs> funny or especially emotional or especially like great stories and then the title seven things I've learned really is just a um a pretend grab bag that I can mm-hmm. put them in. A conceit. A conceit. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm, it's not exactly a MacGuffin, but it's like a MacGuffin, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so um, as you go around uh, sharing clips from your favorite shows and talking about what makes a great story, um, something I think so many Canadians loved was a story you had last year where you went to Alberta um, to explore the reputation of that province as rat-free. I'm going to play a bit of this. This is you with Rat Inspector Jory Hoffman. It's exciting when you find some. Get a sense of just how monotonous Joy's job usually is when he talks about the last big infestation he cleaned out. It was especially memorable because instead of using poison, which is the normal way they handle it, the landowner is the one who discovered the rats. And he told Jury, why don't you come out and bring a shotgun? Yeah, and they just go running out of the holes and you get time to shoot them and then reload. It was a ton of fun. Four good friends and four shotguns and... Yeah, that was that was a great day. Okay, Ira, this sounds like like I, Rat Inspector alone makes someone such a compelling person and character. But why travel to Rat Free Alberta? Like, why did that strike you as a great story for a program called This American Life? Oh, the the American part of the title, we just we go anywhere we want. We just like oh, <laughs> this life. It just seemed it, it seemed like a good idea for a, a title of a show until we decided that we were successful enough to market the show overseas, and that it's just been a real. Pro- it honestly has been a real problem. It's the reason we're not on the BBC. I'm sure of it. Is like we've never been able to get on. So anyway, so but but uh, that marketing mistake aside, um, yeah, we'll just go wherever there's a, a, a story. And then we were doing an episode about rats, uh, inspired partly by the war on rats declared by New York's mayor, a deeply ineffective and doomed effort from the start. That um, that it seemed like he, the mayor of New York was, you know, he declared a war on rats because people like it when he talk, talks about that, but it doesn't seem like it's going to do much. And, and and we just thought like, oh, let's do a show about rats. And in fact, at some point, one of our producers was like, you know, we're not really hearing the point of view of the rats. And so we got rat co-hosts. We got these comedians to play <laughs> rats and we sped up their voices so they would co-host with me. And then we heard about this story. And I think it's gotten a lot of coverage, you know, in, in Canada. But I think every American I would talk to about this, everybody was, was shocked to know that there's a province in Canada that's basically the size of France that has no rats and uh, and and to hear the story about it and then honestly like one of the things that I was very curious about was did did Albertans have pride about it like was it mm. like a thing that they teach in schools <laughs> and one of my favorite parts of the story is we went we went to a place where a lot of Albertans were and um 
And so we went, we basically went in front of the zoo and people are streaming in and out on a Sunday afternoon. And we're just like, name the things about your province that you think are really distinctive and you're proud of. And like almost no one mentioned the rat free, mm-hmm. nobody, like they don't even think about it because mm-hmm. they don't have rats. Like mm-hmm. literally just one of them said like, we don't have kangaroos either, but I'm not proud of that. <laughs> and I was just like, it's, like it, it's a real achievement, you know? Yeah. Well, Alberta is trying to get um, people to move to that province. There's a campaign on by its government. In that their advertising campaign, they do not say, you know, come to us. We got no rats. They, they talk <laughs> about many other things that Alberta has going for them. So. I know. And I wonder if they market tested that. I have to say, like, Calgary was, I, as somebody who lives in New York City, I found it to be stunningly diverse. And so that campaign has worked. They have really gotten yeah. a lot of people to move there. It was really a nice yeah. place to visit. It's a really multicultural city. Our prairies get a bad rap for being like, just like traditional and white. They're not that way. They're, they're, they're changing. They're changing just like much of the rest of our country is. Yeah. Um, so as you said, look, Canadians know this story about the rats in Alberta. And there isn't a reporter in Alberta that has ever worked with that hasn't done a story about it not having rats. But you walk in, and I, I'm trying to get it, like, and I know you hate this question, I'm sure you do, but what is it about you, Ira Glass? Like, what do you, what, you're able to get things out of people, bring a different complexion to the stories, not just in the storytelling, but how you ask questions. Like, what is it about you? I mean, I'm out for my own fun. I don't know a better way to say it. Like, even in that clip you were playing with Jury, like, at some point, Jury just got really excited talking about shooting all these rats. And it was really fun to hear him do it. And I don't know. I thought it was, like, there there were certain just things about the story that were fun for me personally to think about. And, um, you know, including, you know, including figuring out if Albertans actually were proud of this. You know, mm. like I just I just came in with my own agenda. And then, you know, like the key to any interview, the key to getting people to open up is like you just have to actually be interested. <laughs> like it sounds yeah. so dumb to say, <laughs> but if you actually just really want to understand them and what their experience is or something, like most people open up. Like it's just a human like like you know, if you think about it, like during the day, how many people actually give a damn about what you're saying. And so to show up as somebody who actually I'm actually want to know, like I have a lot of questions. I, yeah. I'm really curious, and you say stuff, and it's funny to me or interesting. Like I feel like that that's that's a lot. It's of cool. It. It's I mean that's it's so basic. This is I'm, I feel like I'm saying the most basic thing a person could say, but I really don't have anything special beyond that. Yeah. Um. So you're not just like a a, a host anymore, but you you run a business. Um. American this American life has been successful. It's turbulent times in the media business um is is the business side of things with all these podcasts that's something you like i love it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i like really love it? i i love running the business i always have um how do we talk program directors into picking us up on the air was our early goal like what do we say to them what do we do you know and and we would come up with creative things to do it was just like a fun project that seemed easier than writing or editing or reporting where where you really don't know how it's going to work out. And so the way we got onto stations is we knew they didn't need another show. Lots of people were getting were trying to sell them shows, but we knew they really needed interesting ways to raise money from their own listeners in pledge drives, which is the thing we have here in the states which which you are lucky you don't have up there in Canada. Um, the, the you know the, the the United States Congress doesn't give much money to public radio or public TV here in the states, and so all of the public radio stations have to go on the air and basically beg listeners to send them money. Yeah, and um, and they it's just a terrible 
unpleasant job. And what we really realized early on was that that's what the program directors really wanted that nobody gave them was really funny, compelling, successful pledge modules that would make people light up the phones. And I feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a radio producer. I, I can make anything. You know, give me an assignment. I can do it. I'll do the best one you ever heard. And like, uh, and I was like, pledge drive, no problem. And then we would make these little three and four minute pledge drive segments where we would, you know, stop people outside of a Starbucks and ask them how much they spent on their coffee and did they listen to public radio and how many hours did they listen to public radio? How much had they paid for the coffee? How much were they sending into the public radio? And literally like, I remember one guy just literally like broke into sweat. You could see beads of sweat as he felt like so guilty that he was like spending $4 on coffee and then he was listening to public radio for six hours a day, sending us nothing. And we would just do these funny little spots and people would, would send in a lot of money when they heard him. And we told stations like, you can't get these spots unless you pick up the show. And in our first hmm. in our first year, half the stations that we got picked us up because of the pledge spots. They told us, we just want the pledge spots. We'll take the show too if we have to. And um that's that was and we just thought like, well, that's a really fun business problem to try to solve, to think through like what does the program director want? Because he doesn't want a new show. That's just a pain in the ass. It's interesting listening to you talk about um, sort of the business, the business problems, and public broadcasting, because I think both in- internally and externally, and I know we're funded differently um, than in the States, but, you know, it, those two things sometimes are seen as like, ooh, attention that people don't want to talk about, or it's sort of mm-hmm. gauche to talk about the business of public broadcasting. And I bring it up because the media landscape is in, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, the toilet? I don't know where it is, but it ain't mm-hmm. good. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering what your thoughts are on that, because there's people like, you know, we're all trying to figure out the future. Um and so how are you thinking about public broadcasting in the future of radio? Like, we don't even really call it radio around here anymore. We call it audio. Um, I still say I'm a radio host because I go on the radio. But how are you thinking about the future of the media? I mean, I feel very lucky that I'm not starting a show. It's so much harder now. Yeah. You know, like, 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 you know, I feel lucky that we have an audience and they're listening already. And we don't have to, like, it's so much harder, you know, for any radio show or podcast to get audience. And then the thing that was the reason to exist, I think, for public radio around the United States anyway, I don't I don't, I don't know how the true this is in Canada, was that we were going into little towns that didn't have a great newspaper. And so, you know, you know, just when I was growing up, like basically if you were like a smart person living in Iowa, you know, you you couldn't get the New York Times delivered and the TV news wasn't good. And so, like, you would listen to public radio because basically it would be the information that, that you weren't getting at a, with a level of depth that you couldn't get from local media. And now that function of public radio is basically, you know, gone. You know, by the time people hear the news on our shows, you know, like, you know, anybody interested is like already checked it out on their phone, right? Like, they already mm. gone to the news sites they like, whatever they are. And so, and so... From a mission point of view, just just finding a space where you can be saying something different and providing a service is is harder. I mean, the CBC has such a different place in Canadian life than NPR does in American life. Like the, I know the CBC is always historically was just like one of the most treasured Canadian cultural institutions, whereas public radio in the states really didn't exist until the 1970s and and really in its early years were just were just a bunch of college stations that had no money that sort of banded together and so it, so it's a very different history in the two countries and and the way i see it now is like is like like clearly 
you know, people want to find the news and people also want all the other things that come with the kinds of services that you have there and we have here. They want to hear like, what's a book that I don't know about yet or an author I don't know about yet who's going to be amazing, who's going to be my next favorite person? What's music I might like that I don't mm. like yet? You know, like all of those things, there's still going to be a market for them. You know, but the but the question is like, you know, how do how do you organize, you know, how do you organize the revenue so it can still work? It's been interesting to watch the New York Times, which was going bankrupt a few years, basically turn itself into a kind of subscription model where, you know, they basically try to give us out a certain amount of free content so as to hook people into their system. And then, you know, then the the people subscribe. And that's where Mm -hmm. basically with the ad base gone, they have to do that. Yeah. I will just say um, public broadcasting isn't... uh you know, it's up for grabs here in Canada too, right? Like there's a lot of debate about whether this CBC should exist and to what extent should exist and how it should be funded. And I, and, and again, I, I bring this up because I think this is a challenge for all kinds of media organizations and the polarization that we see in your country and ours. And I know you said like, let's just, uh, this American life, not always about the United States, but to that point, you're in an election year, you have a very polarized um, citizenry in your country. And so I'm just wondering what's on your mind in this election cycle and seeing your country being quite divided. I mean, I wish I had like a really smart answer to this question. I mean, we're figuring out how to cover it. It's a, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's an election that everyone in the United States and probably around the world feels like they've, well, we went through this exact election four years ago. Do we have to sit through this one again? You know, the thing that's hard right now is to be part of the fact-based medium Mm-hmm. And to feel like people really don't care about the facts. Like, that's something that's different than when I started making the show 30 years ago, where it really felt like presenting the facts meant something. Whereas now, in our country and yours and all over the world, like, the most common thing is that the facts come out and basically people who don't agree with the facts just troll the facts until. Yeah. They don't matter. And there are facts, by the way. That's what I always say. Facts are facts. They're not up for dispute. And yet we like to dispute and debate facts these days. <laughs> yeah. And it's then weird. also, you know, like, yeah. So 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 that, that, you know, I mean, that's something that, that I think about a lot. I mean, one thing that, that is good for a show with our format is that many people we found in the last election simply know us as a podcast and don't know our affiliation with public radio, which is good for us because with Republicans – who would be who would be suspicious of like a CNN reporter? Like they yeah. know what CNN is, they know they don't like it. Whereas if our, you know one of our producers, Zoe Chase, who spends a lot of time with Republicans, you know she goes up and she says, "I work for a show called This American Life." It sounds like the most like red, white, and blue. Yeah. <laughs> like already, yeah. we're halfway there, and then and then and and. And uh, and then, you know, and just say, we're on the radio and we're like a podcast, which is the truth. And I feel like we do end up able to get access to people sometimes who might be less willing to um, to speak to the Washington Post or CNN. And then and then and then the the the, flips, the the other side of it, too, is that I feel like we have listeners who don't identify us as being part of public radio or the liberal media in the same way, just because like podcasting operates in this weird gray territory where basically we just come up as, you know, in a long list of possible shows they can listen mm-hmm. to on a feed. And so there are certain listeners. I mean, I remember, I remember when, um, when, when President Trump was elected in 2016, Zoe Chase, um, she went to a, an event uh, at the inauguration called the Deplorable. 
which was all the all the <laughs> people who were online who sort of tro- helped troll Donald Trump into the presidency, and uh, and who very much like gave themselves credit for like making a precedent by trolling trolling the libs online, and um and lots of people came up to her at that at that event and and said like oh I love your show you know what I mean like like yeah. it, like it, it existed in a kind of like uh, neutral territory like a bicyclist in the middle of Manhattan traffic. You know, where, like, you know, you can still get hit by a truck, but you can also kind of dodge between some of the things that cars can't. <laughs> so, seven things I've learned. Um, not an advice column, not a commencement address, just seven things Ira Glass wants to share with the world on any given night. So, you know, you talked about, I don't know, I'm glad I'm not starting a show now, but what would you tell someone who, like, it's just like, I love telling stories and I want to go out and tell a great story? I say welcome aboard. I say, I say, I say, um, that's a great choice. Um, we're in a war. We're in a war between facts and lies. And we need more soldiers on our side. And it's great to have you. And it's really important. And things aren't going great. Like, people don't trust us. The last president called us enemies of the state. And it's really going not great. And we need new ideas and we need new people and and it's a calling and and welcome to the foxhole with the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grab that completely. Come into the foxhole. Yeah. Come join us. Yeah. Um, it's always great to hear uh, from you and, you know, continued success. Thanks so much for having me here. Ira Glass is the host and executive producer of This American Life. He's going to be in Toronto on February 10th for a live stage show, which is called Seven Things I've Learned. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.